0: Life is a blank canvas, and you paint your own story. The Blank Canvas, a podcast where Lee Rogers chats with the trailblazers, the artists, thought leaders, athletes, entrepreneurs and creators, those stellar individuals who inspire us to live a large life.
1: Well, that's how a voiceover for a show opening should sound, hey? That voice was this week's guest, Jim Meskimen, channelling Ian McKellen. Certainly a tough act to follow for me uh, after one of the greatest voices on the planet, but anyway, here goes. Jim Meskimen, master impressionist, actor, comedian, painter, cartoonist, writer, director. Seriously, a true Renaissance man. Raised in Hollywood, the son of Marion Ross, who is Richie Cunningham's mum on the iconic TV series Happy Days, For a decade, it was the biggest show in the world, which made for a unique upbringing for Jim, no doubt about that. Regarded as the world's greatest impressionist, Jim taps his celebrity impressions for all kinds of programming, and he's a prolific YouTuber. Yep, I know, he's not a kid, but uh, he's pumping out content virtually every day when he's not on other gigs. He's created many viral hits, including his Shakespearean celebrity voices, which many of you will have seen. As a film actor, he's racked up credits such as Ron Howard's Oscar-nominated Apollo 13, The Grinch, Frost Nixon, and many more. In TV, Jim's guest starred on Friends, The Marvelous Mrs Maisel, SWAT, NCIS, Parks and Recreation, Whose Line Is It Anyway, to name but a few. Our conversation covers lots of ground today and showcases Jim's improvisational ability and legendary impressions. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Jim Meskerman. Jim Meskerman, lovely to see you, my friend. Good day, Lee. Good to see you too, my friend. Wonderful to communicate with you across such a vast distance. Yeah, it is. It's a bit of a trip in this day and age, isn't it? See see all your friends on social media, it feels like they're next door, but they're across a mighty sea.
0: Mighty sea, yeah.
1: (laughs) How's the Aussie accent coming along?
0: Oh, it's all right. I'm working on it here and there, you know. It it helps to speak to someone like you, a native, and to work it around a little bit. But uh, it's it's always something, accents are something that is kind of a lifetime challenge. And uh I've been working on various accents that I do since I was a little boy and had, a, had an English babysitter named Connie Godby here and she must have been from the North Country because she spoke just like Mrs. Doubtfire. That's cool, mate.
1: That accent could come in handy. You know, 2020, who knows what's around the corner, maybe uh, escaping down under and that accent might just help you slip through uh,
0: the border. Yeah, I would leave in a New York minute as long as I could get a Qantas flight. Yep, fair enough. Fair
1: enough. Now, mate, as I was thinking about this this morning, I think, okay, so where did I first meet Jim and how did we cross paths? And the first thing that came to mind was New York City in, I think about 93. And, no, no kidding. Yep. Oh, and wow. my wife, Kate Sobrano, the singer, was in New York at the time. We weren't married at that time, but she was there recording an album for Electra Records in New York and she was renting your apartment. Oh my and, gosh, I forgot that. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And so, I couldn't remember if I actually met you at that time. I was staying in your apartment and I was seeing photos of you, you know, because yeah. furnished with your stuff. And I'm like,
0: did I meet him or did I just look at his photos on the wall? And no, quite You sort just of- saw my, my old boxes of baking soda in the refrigerator and the raincoats in the closet and <laughs> we actually didn't meet. We met each other first through our furniture, I guess. That's right. But it was a pretty
1: interesting time because I, I think it might have been the first time I'd been to New York, but it was a pretty kind of exotic, artistic experience. Kate, my wife, was recording this album. You were an artist who you know, had this apartment in New York with this cool rooftop. I, I directed a music video there in Soho. It was kind of like delving into the, you know, the artist's dream. And I was thinking, wow, this guy's an actor, an impressionist, a stand-up comedian, living in New York, living the dream.
0: Yeah, well, what I was then actually was not, although I did impressions, it was not my main focus. You know, just as an artist changes their focus over a lifetime very much, mine has dodged around quite a bit. And at that time, I was mostly being an improv actor on the weekends and a commercial actor, voiceover guy, mainly with my own voice. And then also doing improvised uh, commercials for different clients. Mainly in regions around the US where I would interview people in stores talking about grocery chain or something and all the things, the produce section and stuff like that. And that was my principal day job at that point. But I had higher aspirations. I wanted to be in films and television. But it wasn't until later that I I finally twigged that, oh, you know, every time I do impressions, people really kind of suddenly become more real to people. And that wasn't until 2009. Wow, amazing.
1: So, tell me your story is a pretty interesting one. You
0: were born and raised in LA. Uh, Both parents were actors. Well, in different times though, when I met my father, you know, when I came into the world as his son, he was no longer an actor. He was no longer involved in entertainment at all. He was a very unhappy fellow who had kind of drifted out of show business through losses and disappointments and exacerbated by alcoholism. And my mother, though, was working as an actress and continued to work only as an actress for, you know, the next (laughs) 40 years. But my dad, he bailed out before I was born.
1: Speaking of your mom, she's a bit of a legend. Um, She played Marion Cunningham on the iconic TV series Happy Days. So, yeah, tell us about growing up. I think you were probably 10 or 15 to 20 or 25 through that 10-year era where Happy Days, I think, was the biggest and most successful uh, TV show
0: across the globe, wasn't it? Isn't it amazing? It's so unusual. And, you know, it's dimmed a little bit and it's uh, glamour now, but Happy Days was a very big deal. And it did. I was about 12 or 13 when it started. And 11 years later, 11 seasons later, it was over as a primetime show, but then it just continued to live on. And because it was born in a time when media was very different and cable was non-existent, It was one of three choices that the world had to watch on a specific night, and so you know, just millions of people would tune in and watch the show, and it had a huge impact. What made it nice too was that it was a good-hearted show by very talented people, who all of them went on to do a lot of other things. But my mom was cemented as an icon of motherhood in a really funny way that we continue to feel the reverberations of in our family. Uh, Whenever I mention to a crowd or to an individual. If I'm speaking or if I'm just talking to somebody and I'd say, and my mom is Marion Ross, they always say the same thing. They always say, oh, I love your mom. Isn't that nice? Yeah, that's I mean, not right. If my mom had portrayed a uh, psychotic zombie heroin addict or something and people go, oh, that's your mom. Wow. You know, it would be a totally different reaction for people over the years. She exuded a lot of her own Midwestern values, which in this country means kind of traditional, kind of nice values, uh, supportive, what is known as like kind of, traditional American values. And that really was the writers, but it also was buttressed by the fact that she came from a Midwestern town from Minnesota, where there was farming and swimming in the lake. And she was a lifeguard and, you know, just these kind of wholesome Norman Rockwell kind of uh, virtues that she was a perfect match for. And uh, it's kind of a lovely thing that she represents that to people. And I've had many people say that, honestly, that she meant a lot to them as a character in their formative years. I even had a guy, this is a story I always tell because it was so unique, but I worked on a Schwarzenegger film one time at Universal. I worked just a couple of days and I was on the set there waiting around and one of the production guys came up to me and said, is it true? And I said, well, I don't know, what, what are we talking about? He said, is your mom Marion?" And I said, oh, yeah, 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 It's my mom. And he just grabbed me and held me, you know, for kind of a long time. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what's going on? And he said, I worked with your mom on such and such a shoot, and she made me feel so comfortable and safe, and I was having such a tough time. He was like the prop guy or the art director's assistant or something, and it meant so much to him that he, <laughs> he embraced me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's beautiful. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the values because I think I'm a little younger than you, but you know I grew up in Sydney, Australia. I don't think so.
0: <laughs> grew up in Sydney, Australia, and I remember really you know, you're quite a bit older. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Let me look it up. I'll just get on Google here. This is only going to take a minute. Okay, you're not. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Please go on. As we were watching Happy Days
1: in Sydney, Australia, same deal. There was those couple of options, but Happy Days was usually the option one for the night. I think there was mash mash and happy days pretty well wasn't it yeah yeah but you're right those values did uh i guess beam out across the world and had an influence on all of us it's funny also because when i think of you i think okay here's a guy that's an actor you know born and raised in la and you do have your head screwed on your shoulders really well i think of you as a wise kind of guy not the kind of guy that usually comes to mind when you think of LA and, and actors, I've got to be honest. So so I'm a wise guy to you, is that it? Like I'm some kind of, let me understand you. Now you're being very complimentary. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that's part of the reason why it had a big impact on you, didn't it?
0: And also hats off to your mum. Clearly she did a good- Yeah, hats off to mom. I mean, I don't, I mean, I was kind of a knucklehead, but she- uh, you know, as I'm older now and, and looking back at my life and my upbringing and so forth, I didn't appreciate it at the time. Who does? You know, who does appreciate their parents at the time? You're so busy either orienting yourself or rebelling against them. You can't really ascertain very well the value of them. But in later years, of course, you take time and you go, oh my God, how lucky was I? You know, one thing that I always like to mention about mom was that First of all, as a mom, she was nothing like Marion Cunningham, which is interesting. I don't think I would have done well with Marion Cunningham, but <laughs> with Marion Ross, I, I was very lucky. I really lucked out because she was actually quite supportive of me as an artist. And I've come to find out in talking to other human beings that it's very rare to find a parent who is really, really behind you as an artist, especially young, you know, when before you've actually got any... I don't know, you've ever achieved anything or any, any recognition or you've really proven yourself, you know, when you're struggling and you're, you're making messes, which goes on a long time, some people never break out of. And she was always super, super supportive to the point of like, you know, if I needed a particular kind of art supply, she would help me get that. Or if I needed to stay up late on a school night, like late, she would help me. She would say, okay, I'll make you cocoa. You know, these little things. And then when I would do the thing, whatever I was working on, whether it was a poem or a painting or a cartoon, I was a cartoonist. I'm still a cartoonist. I taught myself to be a cartoonist. Uh, She would always accept it and admire it and never, ever be critical of my artwork, which is very rare, I find, uh, when talking to other people. Uh, Other parents can't seem to stop themselves from pointing out a tiny flaw in a creation. And that is just devilish. I mean, it just, you know, it wreaks havoc on a young artist. It, those little things with parents are so important. And for a parent to go, Hmm, it's a little too much blue or hmm, yeah, it's not as good as your last one. is devastating. They don't credit that.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting. Cause one of the reasons you came to mind when I started doing this podcast I thought I've worked with a lot of different artists, a lot of different actors and different kinds of artists around the world, and you came to mind pretty quickly in the first few, and mostly because I consider you one of those artists that can pretty well do anything. You know, you paint beautifully, you write, you direct, you're an impressionist, you're a stand-up comedian. That's kind of why you came to mind. You're not necessarily... Ballet
0: as well. I actually don't don't dance ballet. It's on my list. But it is uh, just the power of validation
1: and support from your your mother, you know.
0: The- yeah, which I'm sure you guys are bestowing on your beautiful daughter because she's obviously a flourishing artist at the beginning of her career, whatever it'll turn out to be. And you've done a what looks like a really good job with her, so that she's not she doesn't look very twisted up and tormented about her future as a creative person. Oh, that's so right. well done. Thank you. That's cool.
1: So, was there any? Epiphany, or this is my calling, or whatever to do with acting? Or was it just something that you grew yeah. up with around you and you just thought, oh, yeah, that's fun? And did you go to college and study acting? Or what was the step from school to becoming a professional?
0: That's a really great question. My, my, my path is very funny, I think. I, I was quite careful with myself in terms of uh, not getting myself in situations where I could be judged for my acting. Didn't seem to mind it with my drawing and painting, but with my acting, which of course is your body and your face and your soul, (laughs) and that I was a little uh, hesitant about showing to other people. And I wrestled with that for quite a while, but in a way it sort of, um, it just created a path for me, right? And when I, I was very confused actually by being the son of someone who got involved with a hit TV show in the, in the seventies. And a lot of the children or the offspring of big stars in America anyway, uh, you know, it's littered with a lot of casualties. I was just looking at a, you know, a guilty pleasure. I was looking at something on YouTube about the children of famous stars <laughs> that went wrong. You know, it's like, oh man, you rub any one of these big celebrities and you find, oh, oh we've never heard about that daughter. Yikes, or that son did what? You know, it's not easy because it's confusing. And it has to do with all the flow of admiration that these people get. And uh, one feels as a, as a son or a daughter that, well, I should be able to do what they do, and yet I'm not them, and yet I'm kind of part of them, and I want this, but really I want to rebel against it. And anyway, all those flows get pretty gnarled up. And in my case, I was just kind of like, I just couldn't quite sort it out, and uh, which led me to some kind of wacky solutions but when i did sort it all out i did have an epiphany cuz like my mother never referred to herself as an artist i never heard her talk about herself as an artist she was an actress and a working person and maybe it's her minnesota background but she didn't put on airs about it you know just like kind of an unpretentious sort of attitude about her own life her own career so i wondered because I felt like the need to do something meaningful and to do something admirable and and important. And I didn't understand how acting had it, especially acting on a sitcom. What does that have to do with being honorable? And I couldn't sort it out. So I thought, well, maybe I don't really want to be an actor. Maybe I want to be a painter. And I dove into painting big time. But the thing about painting was it's so lonely especially the kind of painting I was doing, this realist painting, which is like, okay, spend six, eight months on a painting. Wow. you know, And I, I felt this need to be, <laughs> if you're a performer, spending six or eight months alone and then presenting your work to people who go, oh, that's really great. It, it's not very satisfying. So uh, I did have an epiphany in Madrid, Spain, of all places where I was living. I had just been studying art And uh, I'd made some big changes in my life. And I was starting to kind of begin to crawl out from whatever I was under at the time. And I was like 20, 21. Must have been 21. Uh, And I was walking down the street, uh, a major avenue in Madrid. And I bumped by chance into the actor Harvey Keitel. What was he doing in Madrid? He was doing a movie. He was doing some kind of movie in uh, Madrid. So I, uh, I bumped into him. This is what he sounded like at the time. And I think he still pretty much sounds his way. Anyway, so I talked to him for a few minutes and he was very kind and generous with his time. And I had an epiphany after that because I was so excited by meeting him. And I had just seen him in a movie and I was thinking about the uh, Scorsese movie that it was coming out soon and that whole milieu of film. And and I realized then, I was like, you know, that really excites me. And it gives me a, a feeling of being alive and maybe. That's the honorable thing about acting. Maybe that's part of it that you give to other people a feeling of excitement and being alive. Great. I'm in. And (laughs) once that was like established as a, okay, that's the direction. Then I never looked back. That's cool. Did you then go and study acting anywhere or? I did. I moved from Madrid. I moved to New York with this express idea of becoming an actor. And, um, Although I'd been very reserved about getting acting training because I felt like, I don't know, I feel like I should know how to do this. I was very reserved about it, but I thought, well, if I'm going to go to New York, I better get some training. And uh, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I asked my mom and she said, well, why don't you go to the Stella Adler school? <laughs> it makes me laugh because my mother had a horrible time at the Stella Adler school. But she told me, I didn't know that at the time, go to the Stella Adler School and it's famous and it's in New York and I'm like, okay, I'll go to the Still Adler School and it's esteemed and Brando went there and blah, blah, blah. So I go there and that was just a joke. I mean, it was a horrible joke. It was my introduction to the horrible state of acting training in the United States, which is not just that school, but most schools. Have a degree of guruism, I'll call it, where the teacher is the authority. They know everything. You don't know anything at all, and they're going to impart wisdom to you and give you exercises and tear you down and do whatever they have to do, and it's not going to be comfortable. And, you know, it's the typical thing, right? And I had no experience with that. So, since I had no experience with it, I was kind of a victim of it. And I studied with Stella herself who was in her 80s i went to a lecture of hers every week which was uh memorable for how uh, irrelevant it was uh, and i used to kind of mm, nod off in the middle of it because it was just an old woman talking about her former glory and her very uh, solid opinions about things and then i studied with another woman that was one of her teachers who was just demonic because she would just uh you would put up a scene she would give you an assignment you'd put up a scene and then she would tear it to pieces. And for beginners, I know now, that is a very destructive and pointless thing to do unless you're just trying to winnow the market, clear actors out of the way. And indeed, I, I started out, I swear there were 30 people in this class. And by the time I left, and I left pretty early, there were about a dozen left. So that was my first introduction to that. And then I thought, oh, man, well, maybe... Maybe I'm not supposed to be an actor because it was painful as a result of that. I'd had stage fright to some degree. And then once I'd studied a little bit at the Stella Adler School, I had like I had diseases. I felt like I was like in real physical trouble. Because I didn't want to go in front of people at all. It hurt. You know, it hurt right here in my in my chest. But then, luckily, I started studying at a great improv school where they didn't evaluate you. They didn't say boo about what you did. And I got in front of people and it all just wafted away. And I found something that I truly, truly love to do, which is just create. And uh, man, that was a lucky thing. So after that, I never got acting training until recently very recently because my wife, as you may know, Tamara Meskimen, is one of the founders of the Acting Center here in Los Angeles. And that is a school that is dedicated to teaching acting, but in a completely non-guruistic way. There is no authority. There is nobody telling you what you did wrong. And you're just like working on exercises. You work on exercises that reveal to you something about how you can create more of characters and stuff like that. How you can learn a scene with another person, how you can put it up and completely comfortable. And that acting training, I recommend highly because, but that is the only place I could ever think of in the world maybe that is so non-traditional in the horrible tradition of we must have a guru and he must tear you a new one every time. Wow.
1: So I guess you're not a huge fan of method acting
0: Well, method acting, I've been told by people who I trust, was developed by Stanislavski and it was developed in an insane asylum. It was never meant for Americans. In fact, he specifically said, um, this is not for Americans. I'm sure it would apply to Australians too, because they are already very free with their creativity, free with their emotions. Uh, He said it should not be done by them. And when you look at it, method actors are extremely good, the ones that are renowned And and good. They're extremely good at portraying people who are psychotic in one degree or another. Brilliant at it. The best. But if you ask them to do light comedy, like Marilyn Monroe was was a victim of method acting, basically, and a victim of uh, Lee Strasberg and his wife, uh, who wound up uh, apparently getting a lot of her money after she passed away. Uh, But she was... Made completely unable to do something that she would have been very, very suited for had she not been so introverted by their techniques.
1: Yeah, there's not certain- that I have an opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely some impressive actors and performers from that school of acting, but there's certainly uh, seems to be a list of casualties as well, doesn't mm-hmm. there?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just like, what's the right way to train an actor? That's what we're talking about. I mean, a method actor who decides, I'm going to immerse myself in this character and be this character for a film shoot. Fine. I think it's great. I work with Daniel Day-Lewis. It was amazing. And you look at his work and it's like, well, hands down, it's just fantastic. He becomes that character. Great. But nobody's forcing him to do that. And nobody probably trained him that way. That's something that he decided to do. Uh, Training people that way is the flaw. That's my opinion.
1: Makes sense. Thanks for sharing your opinion there, Jim. You're Not- welcome. I have nothing but opinions to share. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, you've answered a lot of questions I had there with that one. That, that was really interesting. So I guess if you were saying, if you were giving advice to a young actor or a kid coming out of school, finishing high school, somebody who wanted to be an actor, aside from fly over to LA and come to right. the, the acting, uh, was it the acting school or centre?
0: The Acting Center. The
1: Acting, the Acting Center, Center. Yeah. yeah. Aside from that option, which is clearly the best option, what would you recommend?
0: Well, actually, you can even do online stuff at the Acting Center. If you go to com, you can do some of their workshops online. They're doing them live. I mean, it's fantastic stuff. But barring that, the Acting Center, uh, I would say get involved in plays. Do plays. That was the traditional place for people to get training. And you're not completely safe in plays because your director might be a pain in the ass. But you will learn about what it is to be an actor. And you will get in front of audiences. And audiences will teach you a lot. And just doing the activity. Do a bunch of crummy plays. You know, there's plenty of actors, great actors that came out of summer stock or came out of very, uh, you know, just typical kind of plays and stuff. And you learn a ton of stuff that you need to know. Like There's just a lot of practical experience that one can gain. And you can always generally, I'm saying this now in the middle of the COVID thing, but generally you can get into plays without too much stress. Now, uh, we're all in quarantine, so what do you do then? You know, I'm a great believer in uh, putting stuff on YouTube and creating content for YouTube or whatever the next thing that comes along is, social media. And uh, I do, I create lots of stuff all the time. And now we have the freedom to make a little movie or do a little scene or do a little monologue or a song or whatever, write something, create something with a friend and put it up. A friend of mine contacted me because they're doing kind of Zoom broadcasts, these little two-person, these little two-handers on Zoom. And I did one of those that I can give you a link to called Common Senses. And, well, it's just like doing a play, except that you're staring at a little green light, you know, <laughs> And, you know, when, if you become a big movie star, you might wind up staring at a little green tennis ball. It's not much different.
1: <laughs> uh, that's right. Do you think, you think it's harder for kids today than it was a couple of generations ago, you know, for, for whatever career you might be interested in or, or even if you're clueless as to what path to take?
0: I don't think so. I, I think now there's like, like when I was a little boy, when I was 11, the thing I wanted to do was be a professional cartoonist in the worst way, and I drew it constantly. And I even had a sixth grade teacher, Mr. Edler, who tried to take my work to, he said he did this anyway, to, to the Los Angeles Times to see if they would publish some of my stuff, and they said no. And what I wanted was an audience. Now, any kid today can have as big an audience as you want. In fact, some kids have mammoth audiences, millions of people, and for nothing, and they get paid. I, I would say a kid today, has, has exponentially more advantages uh, than we did in the 60s because he can reach a global audience. I mean, if you can reach a global audience with slime, you can cut a pretty wide swath with something really artistic.
1: Yeah. No, it makes sense. Hey, um, so let's go back to the improv in New York because, you know, it's got to be improvising, improvising one-act plays, whatever it is, mm-hmm. in front of an audience to go from a bit of stage fright you know, you've been sketching on your own for, for six or seven months to launch yourself into improv. It sort of doesn't get much harder. So tell me about that and tell me about that time and improv.
0: Yeah. Well, the thing about improv is it can be taught, again, that training is very key. There's bad training and good training. A lot of people I've talked to say, oh my God, you do improv? I tried that and it was really hard. Like, okay, well, how did they train you? Oh, well, they just, you know, the guy said, go up on stage, and you're the uh, copy machine repair guy, and then there's a vampire, and and Leonard, you play the vampire, go. Like, what? You know, it's a horrible way to train anybody. It's like, it reminds me, when I learned to ski, I learned to ski that way. (laughs) I I almost learned to ski that way. My girlfriend brought me up to the top of a mountain. This is not the way to learn to ski. It's not the way to learn improv. So when I I had the benefit of going to a great school, which doesn't exist anymore, but they're teaching it the same way at the acting center in LA, which is step by little step. And if you do step by little step, it's a breeze. Because improv is basically what we do all the time anyway. Gotcha. You and I, we did not rehearse this. We did not script this. And neither of us have any kind of anxiety about getting through this. Okay. And (laughs) (laughs) You <laughs> know, uh, it's pretty simple. It's just human behavior. So improv is that way. What you have to learn and what does take some drilling is how to support the other person in the scene or the other people in the scene. Because most of us go through life doing the opposite of the golden rule of improv, which is to say yes and instead of no but. That's a very famous kind of basic fundamental of improv. Someone says something to you and you go, yes. And most people are we're hardwired to go no, you know. But in a scene, if I was in a scene with you, and uh, you said to me, "Mr. Trump, those those reporters are outside the gate again, and uh, they're calling for your blood. What do you have to say to them?" If I say, "No, I'm I'm not Donald Trump. I'm I'm the cleaning lady," I'm like all right, uh, well, what do you think we're doing? <laughs> you know, you have to kind of start from scratch. It's like a construction site. You know, you're like, all right, I think we're building a house here everybody should agree we're building a house okay good let's start with this but if on the other hand you said to me hey those reporters are outside the gate again I go well listen invite them in because I've decided I need to interact with the press a lot better and I know I've been kind of hold on I have to tweet something I've been kind of a you know then we have a scene then we have something that can flow but it's funny people have to be trained to to agree with one another at the drop of the hat like automatically It's very funny, and I've seen it uh, by being involved in schools and so forth and and training. Where they go, you just have to work people until they finally kind of give it up and go, "All right, I'll just say yes." All right, okay. (laughs) You don't have to make them wrong for it, but it's a process.
1: Gotcha. And what are the other uh, like five golden rules for improv?
0: Mostly, they're mostly shades of how do you agree with that other person, right? How do you listen to them so that you know how to agree? You know, if someone says you know what, we've got five minutes before this missile launches. We have got to get off of this launch pad. Then you go, I know. Then we have a scene, you know? Yeah, gotcha. So, and, and there's all kinds of agreement. Like there's a tonal agreement, you know? Like, like you mentioned one-act plays, and we did a lot of improvised one-act plays. And Kate did, your wife did some with us, which was great. And there are more subtleties of agreement. Like we agree on the style. We agree on the pace. It'd be like music, you know, all the musicians in a jazz band are kind of going, I see the groove we're doing. I see that it's your turn now. I see there's my solo coming up. I see that we're wrapping it up right now. You know, there's always little agreements that go into place. So, and that you really kind of have to do it. It's a group activity. It's very beautiful. Human beings are extremely well suited for this kind of art form. And when other people watch it, it's like they smile.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a lot of those good qualities that you'd like people to have more in life, wouldn't you? It's almost like a recipe for how to get along
0: with others. That's the secret, Lee. Now, you've hit upon the whole thing right there. That is exactly what we were trying to do. If everybody would be an improv actor, we would have better citizens all over. There wouldn't be any wars. Or if there were wars, they'd be very short.
1: So, that's a good segue to impressions there, mate. So, did the impressions come from the improv days or did that
0: come from elsewhere well the willingness to do impression came from the improv days i always had the uh, impetus and the interest and a lot of the skills but i did not have the willingness again i was very tender about being criticized and for you know all the reasons that people get tender about that but my willingness came up by you know exponentially when i joined an improv company and it became very valuable and useful for a member of the company to be able to do a lot of impressions. It added uh, value to the show. And I found myself going, Oh, well, I wonder what other impressions I can do and amassing them and practicing them and introducing them and, you know, letting people know about them and developing forms that would kind of showcase that. And so that's what happened. And then now I, I, most of my, my working life, in impressions for, for one reason or another, which is, I never really would have predicted. I didn't start off being a kid. It was like, man, I want to be the guy in Vegas who has the big impressions show. And, you know, and where's the tuxedo? And the. I never really felt that way. And I kind of wound up in an area where, well, that's, that's the skill set. I do Colin Firth quite often for uh, whenever Colin Firth does a movie. And you know, Lee, as a uh, person in the film industry, that Uh, You know, they they make trailers to to market the work. And in a trailer, you you want to have the actor say something very briefly, what he said at great length in the movie. And so they'll hire me almost every time Colin Firth does a
1: movie uh, uh, to shorten up what he said. Have you met Colin? Have you met De Niro? Have you met many of these guys that you're famous
0: for? I I tell you what, I never met Colin Firth. I I saw De Niro one time in New York. I I saw him. uh, I was walking on Broadway. In the uptown, and I saw him go by talking to someone. Yeah, that was as close as I came. But maybe who knows? One day I saw Al Pacino also walking in Chelsea one time. And Woody Allen. If you live in New York long enough, you see all the old god That was memorable. You, know, you had his fishing cap on, like, if memory serves. But I, I and I know Ron Howard very well because uh, I, I worked on a, a lot of films with Ron. And, uh, and I've been doing my Ron Howard impression quite a bit, which he's heard, you know, and, and is very gracious about. <laughs> do you worry if you do
1: meet De Niro or one of these guys, they might just punch you in the head and go, hey, buddy, you owe me royalties for using my <laughs> you know, name and voice for all these years?
0: Yeah, it could happen. That could happen. Well, you know, I, I try to make it a point of never. Well, I have a policy about never actually performing the voice for the person or in front of the person, you know. But luckily, I don't run into... I I operate in different circles than most of those. It's... uh, What do you call that? Uh, What what kind of air is that? That's some heightened air or... Rarefied. Rarefied, yes, exactly. Very good. Yes, (laughs) rarefied air. My rarefier is in the shop, so I'm going to remember it. uh, There were suits around here somewhere. Do uh, Do you find yourself
1: generating a degree of affinity as you um, you know, study these characters and get inside their head to oh, yeah. understand them and play them. Do you find yourself becoming close to them?
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, like, for instance, Robin Williams. I do Robin Williams' voice for several Disney sort of projects every now and then. I've done that for years, the Blue Genie for various video games and other parades and other crazy things, toys. And um, it's almost like the reverse of what you say, though, because I – I do a develop affinity for them, but the, the voices that I do, the easiest, the personalities that I take on are usually people that I really admire. And I don't mind kind of entering their universe and being them. Like Tommy Lee Jones, I admire the uh, actor Tim, Tommy Lee Jones quite a bit. And I've seen him in movies since early on and always thought he's a very, very compelling, interesting actor. And uh, that helps, I think.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So tell me the approach to being one of these actors. I mean, is it as simple as, okay, there's a person and I'm just going to permeate their space and be that person and feel how they feel or whatever? Or is it more kind of technical process where you look at what their mouth's doing, you look at what their eyes are doing, you look at what they're doing in their throat, their hands, their eyes, their, you know, blah, blah, blah.
0: Yeah, that's very articulate. I, I, it's both those things. You're exactly right. Like when I was a kid growing up and I would go to a Woody Allen movie or I'd go to a Jack Nicholson movie, I would come out of the theater and I, I, I just loved them so much that I came out, you know, being Woody Allen for you know, maybe an hour afterwards. Being Jack Nicholson and being completely uh, looking at the world through his eyes. Uh, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't not, if you understand my meaning. So that's on a fan level, and then if you're a guy like me who's just interested in playing with his voice, like a kid with a guitar or a guy with a trumpet who sits on the stoop and plays for hours because he's, he digs it, that's, that's something different, and not everybody has that. Not everybody, other people have other things to do. Uh, other people have various interests. Now in my career as an impressionist, as a voice artist, I often get something sent to me like, can you do this guy? Uh, and it's an actor nobody's heard of. It's just a guy in a movie that they got to replace his line. Or, you know, we're looking for a kind of an announcer who has this kind of feel. And it's this guy who I kind of know, but I've never really like studied him. I'm not a huge fan of his. I don't have a lot of time to go, well, I will immerse myself in all his work and I will fall in love with him. I don't have time to do that. Maybe it won't work. I, I got to return to this audition around in an hour. So, I'll go on to YouTube and, and then I'll do what you mentioned before. I'll look at the way they hold their jaw. I'll look at John Malkovich and see how he's phrasing things and where that sound's coming from. Or, or a new actor that I've never heard before. I'll look at the way, are they overweight? Are they healthy? How old are they? What part of the world are they from? And then I'll begin to pick it apart and go, okay, I see it's, it's you know, these four or five salient factors. I know I can always reference. I know I can always access that. And so can a lot of actors in Los Angeles, I find. So uh, it's very competitive even with that. But you have YouTube as a great tool and so I'm on that all day long and I'm studying. But with the actors that I've known for years and loved for years, actor Ian McKellen is another. Ian McKellen, you know, I've watched him for a long, long time. And uh, it's easy for me to try to inhabit his space. And I know the little levers I have to pull inside my own neck to pull off the sun. And so that's a practice thing that had its start in affinity or interest, if not affinity.
1: Gotcha. That's cool. Thanks. Uh, You're very prolific in your YouTube videos, whether it's your impressions or, you, you know, your various other characters. Which have been the most successful? Is it the celebrity
0: impressions or is it the other work? Well, you know, I mostly do impressions, but um, uh, the most recent big viral hit I had was a deep fake thing. I got contacted by a guy named Shamuk in uh, Manchester, England, and he said he was looking for an impressionist to work with. And we did. I'd written a poem called Pity the Poor Impressionist that I thought was a really good poem. And I'd done a couple of videos with it, but it never took off. And I thought, well, maybe we do this and then you just switch my face with all these people I'm saying and we'll see what that turns out. And that that went legitimately viral and has over a million views since October, which is good for me. You know, it's good for a a 60-year-old guy. And, uh, again, timing was a key factor there because I've done other deep fakes since then that just sat and sizzled. So uh, you just never know. But um, that was a particularly fortuitous collaboration.
1: Yeah, I've seen it, mate. I I love it. I think that's one of the things uh, about you, I guess, I could say one of the secrets to your success is – You don't sit around and wait for the phone to ring. You're really very proactive, whether it's writing poems, whether it's sketching, whether it's creating uh, different characters, YouTube videos, whatever. You're definitely one of those busy actors that's continually outflowing and creating and, you know, I guess making your own luck.
0: Thank you for noticing. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, it's like your wife is the same way. I notice she's always practicing dancing and singing and writing songs. And, you know, I feel like I've, I'm the guy that got let out of jail and you just don't want to go back in jail again, you know? And I, for me, jail is, there are different shades of it, but when I'm not making something beautiful or interesting or funny, uh, I feel like mm, I could be doing that. <laughs> because, you know, when you think about it, you talk about writing poems. If you just, You know, some of the greatest works in modern culture came about because some guy or some woman uh, had a little notepad with them, and they decided to jot down a few words. And like Elvis Costello is a person that comes to mind. He carries these little notepads around, and he writes these lyrics. And sometimes these lyrics don't show up in anything for a decade, but he's got them in these little notepads. You don't need a lot to create something beautiful. Uh, The idea that you do need a whole structure, you need all this Technology or something like you know, it's very easy to overproduce things, but like Picasso, if you've seen Picasso's work, you know, there's some wonderful videos of him, uh, films of him creating stuff with like some broken pottery. It's amazing, <laughs> like obviously, you do not need the, too much. And so, I feel like, well, you know, I know this too with a pencil and a piece of paper, I can create something that'll make someone smile. If I'm not doing it for eight, 10, 15 hours, couple of days, I'm like. I'm kind of not doing what I'm put on this world to do. That's cool.
1: When I told my wife, Kate, that I was chatting with you today, I said, if you had one question for Jim, (laughs) what would it be?
0: I I love your wife so much. Will you please tell her that? I love your wife. She is a model artist to me and just a beautiful, beautiful person.
1: Thanks, mate. I will. So are you ready for it? I'm ready. Yeah. Fire away. All right. When did you become Atticus Finch? When did I become Atticus Finch? So I better add just for the the listeners out there that haven't read Harper Harper Lee's Pulitzer winning novel of 1960, To Kill a Mockingbird, so that the Atticus Finch character was a lawyer and major character in To Kill a Mockingbird, a character viewed as brave, honourable, respectful to others, wise, compassionate and thoughtful. So... Back to her question again. When did you become Atticus
0: Finch? (laughs) Oh, that's a very good question. I appreciate that very kind remark. I don't feel like I've really earned it, but I'll address it anyway. You know, it's funny. What it makes me think of is a couple things. The first movie I ever recall seeing this lifetime was To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, I've revisited it, you know, every 10 or 15 years. And it's just a, beautiful, beautiful film. They just, you just can't make films like that. Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck is one of the great actors. In fact, we just watched Moby Dick the other day because it's a bit of an aphrodisiac to put in a Gregory Peck movie at our house. But (laughs) (laughs) when I was working in New York uh, for a while, I got an opportunity to do, they said, we want to hire you to come in and do Gregory Peck's voice for a proposal for some commercials for Visa or for MasterCard or something like that. And so I went in and I did my. I, I was probably 26, 27 years old. Gregory Peck from MasterCard. It's the card that keeps you, whatever. I don't remember. And I thought to myself, you know, I'd really love to get this job for Gregory Peck. If I, I thought, if, if they sign off on this and they go, yeah, well, let's get the real Gregory Peck. Then he would make quarter million dollars, you know, for an afternoon's work. But but I think, I think in the end, Gregory Peck said, I'm not going to do that crap. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I love
1: it. Yeah. Well, we, Kate and I, we think of you very highly and we, we think of you as a wise human being, compassionate, thoughtful. We, we love the art that you create. It's generally uplifting, but you, you go anywhere. So anyway, I guess that's where her question came from.
0: That's super kind. That's super kind. And I don't, I believe me, I appreciate the sentiment so much. For me, it's it's an overestimation of my small skills, but thank God, please.
1: (laughs) So that leads me to asking about a short film you wrote a couple of years ago called Sun to Sun. Yeah which was essentially exploring the the dire consequences of the opioid prescription drug epidemic. And I've seen the short film, very powerful, yet yeah, it's won a stack of festivals all over the world and had a you know, long life on the festival circuit. So yeah, tell me about that.
0: Well, I read an article in uh, Freedom Magazine about the opioid crisis. I didn't know much about it. I know that drugs are rampant, but I didn't know how... Uh a rise in opioid prescriptions had created a spike in heroin usage in the United States because once people can't get the opioids, they find they have a much easier path to getting heroin. And so even ordinary kind of, uh, well, I'll say, you know, not skid row bums, not weirdos, but just like mom and pop kind of ordinary people that had maybe gone in for a back operation or a knee replacement or, you know, something like this, and then got prescribed opioids very liberally, uh, found themselves at the end of, uh, you know, very addicted to opioids, and then cut off, and then realized, oh, well, you know, this insane craving I have, this sort of life-threatening craving can be very easily handled if I just kind of... You know, get over my compunctions about uh, a needle and heroin, and heroin usage is just I imagine it's even worse now, but at the time I, I just didn't know I, that was shocking to me that piece of information and so I had a you know I was thinking about stuff, and I, I had this scene in mind of uh, well, what if you were a father uh, trying to talk to your son about your opioid addiction, and what if he had been a heroin addict, and what if you were thinking like, "hmm?" I wonder if my son knows where I could score some heroin. I, that all just sort of unfolded for me. And I wrote it all down in a script and uh, presented it to my friend, Taron Lexton. And he said, Hey, this is great. Let's do it. And uh, Kevin Garrison shot it. And uh, Nick Lane started it with me. And uh, it was produced by TXL, uh, this Taron's company. And uh, it was a really wonderful experience because, you know, often you get involved in a, a fictional movie or a show and it's like, who cares? It's just entertainment. This I felt was about something and could actually, you know, start a conversation and that's, that's what it's done. So it was really, really cool to do.
1: And you played the dad in it
0: as well. I, didn't played, the, you? I played the father. Yeah. Yeah. My own dad was, as I think I mentioned, was an alcoholic and, uh, and abused various types of <laughs> substances. So it was not something that didn't mean anything to me. I meant quite a bit. So it was uh, a, a very, pleasant a thing to address even though it was a very grim sort of subject yeah it's a
1: really powerful film is there a place where people can watch it
0: yeah on my youtube channel actually uh look uh jim meskiman on youtube son to son that's s-o-n the word two t-o s-o-n the idea is that the father becomes a son and the son becomes a father and that was the title gotcha. i came up with so
1: talking drugs Having grown up in LA and, you know, through your teen years and in the 20s, was that a path you went down or did you manage to avoid most of those pitfalls?
0: Well, uh, I avoided it for a while. I I know people that got into drugs at age 11 or 12. I was 17. So I, you know, luckily I had five years (laughs) where I was slightly more productive. Uh, but yeah, I did go down that path because I was nervous. I mean, childhood, teenagerhood is a time of great anxiety, of great discomfort, and you look for relief. So I, I had a girlfriend, and uh, she smoked dope, and I smoked dope, and I felt tremendous relief. Anxiety about sex and about school and about my future uh, just dropped away. And so it had you know, that effect. Then, of course, the the terrible lie and the trap of drugs is that all that anxiety is waiting for you. All it did was kind of go around a corner. And as soon as you stop doing the drugs, then you you have to confront it. And and by the way, while you were away, that anxiety got 50 times worse. Or you have to keep taking more drugs because the body adjusts to any toxins it ingests. And so, you know, you you have a tolerance that gets built up. And so now you need three joints, And next week, you need, you know, 10 bong hits and uh, a little tab of something else. And uh, it it adds up. And then, boy, uh, you have waiting for you then a host of things that you've pushed to one side, Uh, you know, uh, bad emotions, bad thoughts, anxieties, physical pains, uh, deficiencies, all those things are just waiting for you to come down from your high. And then they jump all over you and just clobber you. And you either keep taking more drugs and die eventually because you're just loading more toxins into your system uh, and making bad decisions, by the way, really bad decisions, incrementally bad all the way along. Or you confront it, get through it, stop it, get through the hard part, and just don't look back, which is is what I did. Good job. Good job, Jim. Yeah, well, you know, I like to live and have fun. And too much more than I, I like to torment myself and be an angry, cranky guy, I guess.
1: What are you up to now? What uh, exciting projects are uh, in the pipeline or on the horizon?
0: Well, I continue to uh, feed the YouTube beast. Uh, that's kind of a hobby. I'm writing more. Uh, I, as you mentioned, I'm writing poetry, uh, which is, of course, just a capricious sort of activity, but I really like it. <laughs> And I have an affinity for it, and I have a little bit of a skill at it. So I like to do that. And um, working on impressions, I do the, uh, I don't know if you have Colonel Sanders down there for the KFC brand, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken down in Australia or not. Do you?
1: We do, mate. Right? Yeah.
0: Do you ever hear this voice down there? Uh, I wonder. Uh, this is the voice of the original Colonel Sanders, which I've replaced, because on account of him being dead. Uh, so I do quite a bit of uh, advertisements uh, with this voice. But I'm also just always looking for new creative things to do. I have a screenplay I've written called The Impressionist, which is a kind of a thriller about an impressionist who gets approached by some unsavory characters to cheat the elderly. And he kind of goes into this web of criminality and then he tries to get out. And uh, I'm shopping that around a little bit. Sounds
1: good, mate. Well, I very much look forward to seeing The Impressionists. In fact,
0: you know, hey, you need a director, Jim? Actually, I I am looking for a director, Lee. Maybe we could have this conversation. I'll send you the screenplay. I think we've run
1: out of time of talking about your (laughs) directing because you've also directed a bunch of um, award winning projects. But anyway, maybe for part B another time. Part B, exactly. Yeah. Mate, thank you so much and an absolute pleasure to chat with you today.
0: Likewise, mate. It's so great to see you. Thanks so much for all the great questions. Good on you. See you, buddy. All right. Cheers.
1: Well, That's it for another week. I trust you've enjoyed getting to know Jim Meskerman. Gobsmacking talent combined with wisdom is always a potent combination. To check out Jim's work, head to his YouTube channel, Jim Meskerman, or his website, jimmeskerman.com. That's M-E-S-K-I-M-E-N. Next week, we're heading into the world of beauty and makeup with Ray Morris. Ray's story is a beauty. Growing up as a tomboy on a farm in Queensland, she spent her teens as a hairdresser in Brisbane. Before long, she's one of the most influential makeup artists in the world, a best-selling author, four-times Australian makeup artist of the year, the longest-serving makeup director for global beauty giant L'Oreal Paris, and she's an absolute sweetheart. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Have a great week and live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.